days before the uh, what the Russians call special operation, what the West calls a war and an invasion, what the Russians call a special operation, days before the shelling reached dangerous levels. And this is not according to, to Russians, this is according to the OSCE. Mm-hmm. And they said that most of the shelling, 80% of the shelling was coming from the East, from, from the West, from the, the military that had around 80 to 100,000 troops right on the conflict line with Donbass and Lugansk. Yeah. Putin says they were ready to invade. They were ready for a blitzkrieg. We have evidence. We have documents that in March, they were going to make their move. But even then, the most interesting part about Putin's revelations is that he says, even when we uh, started our military operation, we told the Ukraine uh, government in Kiev, have those troops that are on the contact line retreat and we'll stop. Have them retreat, push mm-hmm. them back. You want to know what they did? They pushed forward. So I'm really happy to be speaking with you today, Alex Christoforou. Did I pronounce that correctly, by the way? Oh, excellent. Very good. Um, well, so I, I know of your work uh, with the Duran for, for years, but um, I, I would like to ask you just to maybe introduce yourself a bit more and also the the origins of the Duran. And I should note, I meant to say, um, I'm very grateful for the work you've been doing for many years. Well, thank you. It's great to, to finally speak with you. I've, uh, I've been following your work as well, very closely, as has uh, Alexander, the other yeah. part of the Duran as well, Alexander Mercurius. And uh, we have the channel, uh, the Duran, on uh, various platforms, YouTube, Rumble, uh, Big Shoot, Odyssey, Super U, as well as uh, a, a really uh, active uh, group on uh, pay- on, uh, on Locals, the Duran.Locals.com, as well as Patreon and Subscribestar. So Run a lot of platforms as you have to be nowadays, given all the censorship. But uh, we have the Duran channel. Alexander Mercurius has his channel as well. And I have uh, my channel, but it's all under uh, the umbrella of the Duran. And we just try to get as much news out to, uh, to our uh, subscribers as possible. And uh, that's what we do. We cover geopolitics um, and we just try to cover it in an honest and truthful manner to the, to the best of uh, our ability. Yeah, that's what we do every day. Well, I've been I've been tuning in quite a bit lately, and I have to say, um, your your analysis and you know coverage of events in Ukraine um, has been very level headed and very insightful, and I would say like a, a nice antidote to the hysteric uh, kind of stuff coming out of Western corporate media. Uh, but also, uh, I don't think you could really be accused of being, you know, uh, a Putin propagandist or any of the things that's normally slung at people who stray from the Western narrative, because you really are uh, incredibly uh, balanced, in my opinion. So uh, I think it's worthwhile uh, people to to be listening to your analysis and commentary. Well, uh, unfortunately, they do label us. A lot of people label us as uh, Putin propagandists. I mean, I'm sure you're used to the labels that get thrown at you because... You try to present stuff in, in an honest and truthful way. Right. Um, and when you do that and you go against the mainstream narrative, which at all, oftentimes is not truthful and is not honest, um, you get labeled with these, with these things. You're a Trump apologist, you're a Putin apologist, you're uh, an Assad apologist, what, whatever you hear over, depending yeah. on the conflict or the crisis. But uh you know, we our job is to try to analyze what's going on and to present it to our viewers in an honest and factual way. You know, we we believe a lot in uh, in reality and in real politic. And uh, you know, people may not like what they hear. They may they may not uh, feel good with what they hear. Maybe they're on the other side of things. They have a different view of things, but it doesn't change the reality of what's happening or, or what's going on. And uh, you know, we have to present that. Uh, that reality. Unfortunately, though, in in the case of uh, of Ukraine right now, we are we are being labeled as as, as Putin apologists, or you're paid by the Kremlin, or all, all kinds of nonsense. But no one ever argues the the points or the facts. Right. They just they just throw these labels at you. They never argue uh, the, the the points that you're making or or try to counter what you're making making. It's just oh, you're a Putin apologist, and and that's that. Yeah. And. Uh, you know, I, that's one of the reasons we're in this mess, the world. That's one of the reasons we're in this mess. 
Well, no, I, I definitely um, understand <laughs> what it's like to, to be labeled with all sorts of smears. Uh, you know, and I think I think probably you and Alexander have reached the same point perhaps long ago. Like it doesn't matter, you know, what people say because you're you're still going to say your mind, right? And it's, for me, it's the same thing. Whatever platform, even even if my only platform is my own blog, I'm still going to be saying the same thing. Nobody's influencing me except, you know, insightful commentary and analysis provokes me to think or, you know, what I hear on the ground in a given location. But in terms of being dictated to what to say, no, no. So I think uh, it's, it is an important point for people who are listening who might not be aware of just how much slander you are taking um, and 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 how how it really, like you said, it doesn't present any argument. It's just meant to uh, it's just meant to tar your reputation and, and cause people just not to listen, period, to what you have to say. So uh, that said, um, I think let's just start with how would you pre present uh, what is happening in Ukraine, what's been happening the last, what, three weeks? Um, and but of course, with with more context than just uh, late February 2022, how would you present that to your average Western consumer of Western corporate media who is getting this narrative that uh, out of the blue, Russia is invading its neighbor, the democratic nation of Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I, I think that uh, that you kind of hinted at what's going on. Um, and uh, I know that you're very well aware of the situation and the history of the situation. And I think that's one of the big problems with what you're getting from uh, the mainstream media. If you're just following the, the collective West, and I use the word collective West because I'm, it's a way to categorize the European Union, the states of Europe, say Canada, the United States, um, Australia, maybe New Zealand, um, these countries that are now aligned against uh, Russia and in, in, uh, in support of uh, Ukraine. The narrative is that all of a sudden Putin, this madman, this man that wants to recreate the Soviet Union, uh, decided for, for crazy reasons, because he's a dictator, he's the next uh, uh, Austrian painter, if we can say the word, he's, he's this next supervillain, he, uh, he decided to invade Ukraine. There's no context, there's no reasoning, it's just the usual, he wants to recreate the Soviet Union and he's hungry for power and pretty soon he'll be marching uh, all the way to Portugal. And uh, that's the narrative that you get. And this happened all of a sudden. It's, uh, it's a war that's only been taking place for uh, three weeks. And that's that. And everyone has to support the democratic uh, country of Ukraine and fight back against the evil authoritarian, tyrannical, dictator, uh, the most evil man in the world, which is uh, Putin. He, he's now the most evil man in the world. Before it was it was Assad, and then it was Gaddafi, and then it was Saddam, and okay. So now he's the he's the most recent uh, uh, man to, to be, to be uh, dubbed the most evil man in the world, right? Okay. That's the collective West narrative. Um, if people want to believe it, that's fine. I'm not saying don't believe it, but that's the narrative that you're getting. This happened all of a sudden for these reasons. If you look at it from the Russian side of things, this is a conflict that has been going on for decades, for decades with regards to NATO and NATO expansion, going back to uh, Putin's speech in, uh, in Munich at the Munich Security Conference, I believe it was 2007 or 2008, where he told the West, do not expand any further. This is a problem for us, Ukraine. Georgia, all these countries must not get into NATO. It is a security risk for us. And we want, as Russia, we want security guarantees. It's not asking for much. As a, as a great power, at a minimum, as a great regional power, because once again, in the West, you get the narrative that Russia is just a, a gas station masquerading as a country. And they use you know, these terms as well, which is very degrading, because Russia is much, much more than uh, than a gas station. If, if you look at the, the economics of Russia, and people are going to find out now that it's much, much more when they start retaliating, retaliating against the sanctions, a lot of people, unfortunately, are going to learn that it's much more than just a gas station. But you get that narrative over and over again. But as a, as a great regional power and a great power in the world, uh, it, it's, it's proper and right to think about a collective security guarantee for Europe and a security guarantee for Russia, as, as it is logical and correct to think about this for the United States and for China, etc. India, the, these, are, these are big, great powers. 
You fast forward to 2014, and that's where you had the coup. And it was a coup. It was a coup. It was initiated by the Obama White House. It was initiated by Vice President Joe Biden. It was initiated by Victoria Nuland. You had Jeffrey Pyatt, the U.S. ambassador in Ukraine, and you had John McCain, a U.S. senator, flying into the Maidan Square to egg the people on in this revolution. This revolution of dignity is what they called it. But it was a coup. It was a coup d'etat. I'm not saying there, there were not problems in Ukraine. Ukraine's had problems since it was... Uh, since, since the Soviet Union dissolved, it's had problems. And um, it hasn't been able to overcome those problems, whether they're problems with the leadership, whether it's corruption, um, you name it, it has not been able to, to stand on solid footing. And in 2014, it all uh, crumbled. Um, I remember you had the Sochi Olympics, so Russia was distracted as to what's going on. Uh, they kind of got caught flat-footed. And uh, the Obama White House, with the help of the European Union, they removed the internationally recognized, democratically elected Yanukovych. Now, I'm not saying Yanukovych was a good president. I'm not saying he wasn't corrupt. Many people say he was. I don't know. He probably was. Was he a good or bad president? Maybe to some people in the West, he was a bad president. Maybe to people who voted for him in the East, he was a good president. It doesn't matter, though. He was democratically elected. And when they removed him from office, you ended up with, uh, with, with Yatsenyuk and uh, some very far, far right radical forces as well, moving into uh, to fill the, the power vacuum. And Yatsenyuk was the guy that Victoria Newland and Jeffrey Pyatt um, in their telephone call that was, uh, that was leaked to the world. They were the guy that they installed to, to head up this interim government. Then you, you came with Petro Poroshenko, the oligarch chocolate king billionaire who then came in. And uh, then you had Joe Biden telling Poroshenko to, uh, to start a war in the East, in the Donbass. This is after Crimea uh, ascended into the Russian Federation. And uh, this, this leads us to where we are today. This has been an eight-year conflict. And a lot of people get Crimea wrong. Crimea did not, uh, was not annexed by the Russian Federation. Russia did not invade Crimea. They didn't need to invade Crimea because they already had uh, troops there. And all the troops did is that they just, they just safeguarded the, uh, the area so that people could exercise their democratic right to vote for their future. Because these people were part of Ukraine. Then they saw the government overthrown by hostile foreign forces. And they said, you know what? We don't like this. We don't like this. They saw laws being passed right away, like you can't speak Russian, which was one of the first things that this puppet government did. And uh, they opted to, uh, to become part of Russia. And uh, the Russian military, which was already in Crimea, provided the, uh, the safeguards for those people to exercise their uh, democratic right. And they voted to become part of Russia. And it wasn't a rigged vote. It wasn't manipulated. There was none of that stuff going on. Uh, these people are, they feel Russian, they want to be part of Russian, they speak Russian, and they decided to be part of Russia. The Donbass, unfortunately, was not afforded that, um, that ability. And, uh, and Russia said they would not accept uh, a referendum to ascend into the Russian Federation, even though the Donbass uh, wanted it and did it, but Russia wouldn't accept it. I mean, it takes two to tango, you know, mm -hmm. and Russia has to accept your accession into the Federation as well. They accepted Crimea as for Donbass. Uh, Russia always worked within the Minsk Accords, which were never followed over eight years. It brings us to where we are today. So long story short, the West sees this as a three-week conflict. Russia sees this at a minimum as an eight-year conflict. And just to touch on what you said about the Minsk Accords and how they were never followed, uh, please like detail by whom were they never followed? You know, <laughs> you, you know, they weren't followed by Ukraine. Right. Why were they not followed by Ukraine? Because the U.S. was not allowing Ukraine to follow the Minsk Accords. And even worse, Angela Merkel and, uh, and the French at that time, Hollande, <laughs> Macron after Hollande, the U.S. was putting pressure on the Germans and the French to not put pressure on the Ukrainians to follow the Minsk Accords because 
we can't forget Germany and France, they signed on to the Minsk Accords. The U.S. was not involved. Yeah. But Germany and France were guarantors of the Minsk Accords. In other words, they had to make sure that Donbass and Ukraine followed through. And Ukraine would not follow through. And no one put pressure on Ukraine to follow through. Actually, the exact reverse. They were egging Ukraine on to say, we're going to join NATO. We're going to become part of the EU. We're going to join NATO. Give us weapons. Give us uh, artillery. Give us missiles. And this went on for eight years. And Russia kept on complaining time and time and time again about not fulfilling the Minsk Accords. And the Minsk Accords is not a complicated document. It's like a two-page document. Mm-hmm. but they would not uh, follow through on it. And they kept on shelling the Donbass. They kept on attacking the Donbass. I mean, three weeks, the West is saying this war started in three weeks, but Russia is saying we're finishing a war that started in 2015 and has cost the lives of 14 to, to uh, 20,000 civilians in the Donbass. People never mention the people in the Donbass. It's like they have no agency. They don't exist. Or if they are mentioned in, in Western corporate media, they're mentioned as just as separatist or some other kind of like derogatory term. The, the civilians, the, why they're resisting, that's not mentioned at all. Children, uh, families, women, uh, people were killed. Yep. Upwards of 20,000, 14 to 20,000. It's, it's terrible what's been happening in Donbass. And uh, if, if I may, uh, I went there just for under three weeks in 2019, in September 2019. And I did go to um, uh, three or four villages that were 400, 500 meters from Ukrainian forces that were being shelled by, including with heavy weaponry prohibited by the Minsk Accords uh, on a nightly basis, also sometimes during the day. But they, they, they said it happens more during the night because the observers are gone and Ukraine can unleash hell upon them, and they do. And uh, one woman, um, head of administration, I think her position was in Zaitsevo, a village north of Gorlevka, which is north of Donetsk. She was saying, we've not had any of the ceasefires. None of them have reached us. We've not had any days of peace. And she basically depicted the Ukrainian forces as systematically going street by street and destroying the houses. And uh, I, I did definitely see a lot of destroyed houses, including one house that was still smoldering from um, being hit two days prior. And the people that I was meeting there, for the most part, were elderly and uh, <clears throat> had nowhere to flee to. Uh, so they, they had no choice but to stay and be terrorized on a daily, nightly basis. Um, so, yeah, and they're perfectly aware, of course, uh, who is doing this to them. Um, they, they, you know, you, you said um, they're not given any agency. You're right. The, the Western media is, has totally despaired them, like they did the, the, the Syrian civilians, by the way, right? Um, who actually support their army and President Assad. Same thing, they, they were disappeared because it didn't fit the Western narrative. Um, so I, I definitely, like from a personal um, uh, perspective, I can chime in a little bit from, you know, a brief, albeit time, a brief time in Donbass, but um, certainly the people I met were were being terrorized by, by Ukraine. You saw forces. it firsthand. Yeah. You saw it firsthand. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the part that frustrates me so much about this uh, this conflict is that all of a sudden you see people changing their... Uh, their profile to have the Ukraine flag. They're wearing these uh, Ukraine flag uh, pins. Um, you know, women are painting their nails blue and blue and yellow. But you ask them, what's Lugansk? What's Donetsk? They have no idea. Yeah. They have no idea. But you have this Russophobia being ratcheted up to to unprecedented levels, and uh, it's it's terrifying. And uh, and the Russians see this. You see, the, the Russian Russia is a sophisticated society. Once again, contrary to what people in the West hear about Russia, it is a very sophisticated society. And they see that uh, they're being targeted and they see the hate and the vitriol. But they also understand what's happening in their region because this is very much a fight that's in the family. I mean, this is, this is their area. These are the people that, that they've known for decades, for centuries. I mean, this is their area. This is their land. This is their history. And all of a sudden you have all these other countries in Europe lecturing Russia and telling uh, Russia that they're bad and that they're evil and their president is this and that. And uh, they're sanctioning them and they're cutting them off from uh, from food, uh, for, from uh, food companies and and clothing manufacturers and all the great things that Western society uh, provided to Russia in their minds over the over the decades. 
and the Russian people are just sitting there and they're saying, you know, these, these people, they want to destroy us. They don't care about Ukraine and they don't. And the people that have their avatar changed to the flag of Ukraine, they have no idea what Ukraine is, where it is, what's been going on, nor do they care about the people. It is a virtue signal. Yeah. It's a virtue signal that is also morphed into this very evil uh, hatred for an entire uh, culture, country, and history. And that includes people in Ukraine, because people in Ukraine share the Russian history. They're mm -hmm. one. These are the same people. You can take away the West of Ukraine, which we can talk about. That's a problem in and of itself. But most of Ukraine is is the history and the culture of Russia. I, I just want to add on to what, what we've both said uh, in terms of the at least 14,000 civilians are, are people that have been killed, the majority of whom are civilians. Um, you know, when, when I was in uh, the Donetsk People's Republic and meeting these people that are being assaulted on a, a daily, nightly basis. So what I was hearing was of the Ukrainian heavy um, shelling, uh, heavy machine gun firing, sniping. But there are uh, horrific crimes uh, committed in addition to that. I mean, recently I participated in a panel. Um, uh, it was about a, a a people's tribunal uh, to hold Ukraine accountable for its war crimes. And we're talking about mass graves and decapitations. We're talking about ISIS level things that have been uh, committed by these Ukrainian forces. And again, these are the people who Western people perhaps just being duped by, you know, social media to pressure them into putting their profile pics as the Ukrainian flag. This is what you're, you're whitewashing. And this is not, of course, to say all Ukrainians are like this, but this is what the people of like we're talking genocidal levels of uh of murder in ukraine and of course the western uh diplomats when the russian authorities mention genocide they they laugh it off they say there's no genocide in in eastern ukraine but the other thing i i, I would like you to address um again with regard to like this whole solidarity with ukraine uh, are are you in solidarity with the actual people within Ukraine who are being oppressed by these far right uh, forces, including journalists who are being imprisoned, tortured, assassinated, including civilians who might have sympathies, just sympathies for the people of the Donbass who have been imprisoned, tortured, assassinated. This is, these are not random things. These are things that have happened uh, quite a lot in Ukraine. So what I'd like you to um, discuss, uh, Alex, is you mentioned earlier far right forces. Could you uh, flush out what exactly that entails, because I think people in the West, if they think far right, they think of Trump or something like that. But we're talking serious, uh, uh, whatever you want to call them, whether neo-Nazis or nationalists or whatever, Azov brigades. And also you mentioned uh, Western Ukraine is a different thing. So I think you can talk about both th that at the same time because they're hand in hand, really. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? It's Mr. C from The Sea Report, and I'm stopping in for just a sec to encourage you guys to head over to thecereport.com. At thecereport.com, you can get more information on The Sea Report, check out episode resources, follow our blog and get new articles every week, join our mailing list, and stay abreast on the latest news and information. That's right, head on over to thecereport.com, that's www.thecereport.com and be sure to follow us on our social medias truth social rumble twitch clout hub and pill.net yeah we did a live show the other day and someone gave us a question they said why do you call them neo and azis and uh and i use NAZIs because i don't know what platform this will be <laughs> this will be going on but you have to be careful with your wording now yeah. but when you talk about the azov battalion and and this uh, commentator commentator said um, they are not neo. They're actually just NAZIs. If you look at the history, because right. this is a problem that goes back to to those times, to to World War II. And mm -hmm. uh, these these aren't neo. These are the real deal. Right. And they are the they are the real deal. And it's 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 something that is is it a minority in Ukraine in the west of Ukraine? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the general population is not like that, but. And this is the big but. These uh, these groups are embedded in the military, part of the the organized military, the state military, the national military of Ukraine. These Azov battalions, these right sectors, these uh, Svoboda, all these all these paramilitary groups that are um, um, NAZI, 
um, oriented or influenced, they are part of the standing military. The Azov Battalion fights for Ukraine. That's a problem. That's a problem. Taking it even further, these, these radical far-right elements are part of the government as well. And they exert an enormous amount of influence in the government. An enormous amount. Are they the minority of the government? Yes, but just because they're the minority of the government, it doesn't mean they don't exert uh, and 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 a huge amount of influence on how the uh, on how the government uh, acts with regards to its citizens, and that's what you see in Ukraine. You see a small group of people who are very radical to the right in the government, but they have all the power and they rule with fear. They rule with fear because these are people that if Zelensky were to say, I would like to negotiate with the Donbass and with Donetsk and Lugansk and find a solution, these are people who within a couple of hours can bring 50 to 100,000 of their supporters onto the streets. And these are violent, violent supporters, and they're going to wreak havoc in the middle of Kiev. And, and Zelensky knows this. Zelensky also knows that if he were to do something like this, his life could very well be in danger. I mean, they're they're confirmed stories that Zelensky went to the front line in Donbass to, to check on the troops before all of this broke out. You know, now you have those photos of Zelensky in the military gear and everyone thinks that was from the war that happened just now, this conflict. No, those those photos were taken, I believe, in April uh, 2020 or 2021. Those were from, from before uh, this conflict happened. But uh, when Zelensky went to see those, um, those forces, which were a lot of Azov uh, battalion guys, they laughed at Zelensky. Because Zelensky was telling them, you know, we're going to find peace, we're going to do this. And they, they told them, they said, just leave, go away. We don't yeah. listen to you. And Zelensky walked with, you know, the tail tucked between his legs, embarrassed, humiliated. And he understood that he may be president, a puppet president, but he doesn't have the power. Mm-hmm. The real power rests with these radical far right uh, uh, forces and these far right groups. They are real and they're a problem. And the media reported on them multiple times, the mainstream media, but now they don't exist. They don't exist. And, and they are a problem in the West Ukraine because that is, that is the, the area of Ukraine, which is the area of, of people like Bandera and these people who were Nazi collaborators. Mm-hmm. Now, people may argue, why did they collaborate with the Nazis? They had grievances with Russia. Okay, there's, there's a lot of history that we could talk about, but it doesn't change the fact that Bandera and his people committed genocide on, on a mass level, and they corroborated with the Nazis and with Hitler's army. That's a fact. Now, people in West Ukraine can argue the reasons why all of this happened, because they consider Bandera a hero. And when you go to Ukraine, there are streets named after Bandera, there are statues of Bandera, but it doesn't change the fact that Bandera and his movement and the people that supported him were collaborating with the Nazis, and they committed horrific, horrendous crimes against uh, Jews, against Poles, against Russians. I mean, these were terrible, terrible elements, and they still exist in Ukraine, and they're embedded. They are embedded in the military. They're embedded in the government. You hear from so many people, oh, well, there's, you said, there's there's far-right forces in the U.S. or in every country. Okay, there are, but they're not embedded in the military to the extent that the Azov Battalion is. I'm just talking about one battalion. They're not in government and they don't exert uh, an extraordinary amount of power in the government as well. I mean, can you imagine in the US if you had guys with uh, swastika tattoos on their chest yeah. in uh, Congress giving speeches? People would, would freak out. I mean, they do freak out when you say Trump or someone wears a red MAGA hat and people freak out. This, is, this goes far, far beyond uh, a, a MAGA hat, far beyond. But you know, the fact that the Western mainstream media and leaders of Europe and the US support these people, they're trying to whitewash these people, is, is sickening. It's sickening. But it also follows the playbook of Syria. Yeah. And they did the same thing with moderate rebels. And no, no jihadists here. Right. No ISIS here. These are moderate rebels. And we need to support these moderate rebels. Oh, no, I I don't know what you're talking about, jihadists. I don't know what you're talking about, the horrific things they're doing. No, these are moderate rebels. These are white helmets. They're doing the same thing 
in Ukraine. They, they're running the same playbook. And I'm positive that the, the Kremlin knows this as well because yeah. they were instrumental in, uh, in helping Syria stand on its feet. And uh, they understand the playbook that's being run. Unfortunately, when it comes to the media, you know, the, all that power lies in, in the West. You know, as for the playbook, you're right. It's 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 uh, there are so many parallels. Um, Israel arming and giving medical care to, quote unquote, rebels in Syria, Israel arming uh, these extremists in Ukraine, um, the, the media whitewashing of their crimes um, and insisting that they're peaceful creatures that are just bringing democracy. You know, from the very beginning in Syria, these these non-moderate, non-rebels were terrorizing the people of Syria, the civilians. They were committing massacres from the very beginning. Because I know, I know, Western narrative is is like, well, yeah, yeah, it was an, a peaceful uprising, and then around mid 2012, they armed themselves because evil dictator, blah blah blah. But that's not true. It, from the very beginning, they were committing massacres against the Syrian people. And honestly, if you go and you talk with Syrian uh, civilians, most of them don't differentiate between FSA, uh, Anusra, ISIS. They're all the same because they're all committing these heinous massacres so you know whereas our media tried to say well no these are moderates these are not no they're not they're not and uh and also maybe you can talk about uh, you mentioned mccain earlier um he also went to syria and met with some of these terrorists if we re recall that right same people and then as far as the playbook, do i need to say more you said it the exactly. same people the same playbook same and, as, and as far as the media, we're seeing like the same sort of uh, repetition of, of propaganda we, we had on Syria, you know, hospitals being bombed, maternity hospitals being bombed. Ironically, in, in 2016, I was in Aleppo before it was liberated. And I, I met the uh, director of a private hospital, Dabit Maternity Hospital, which actually was bombed by the terrorists. And the media didn't report on that. It was hit twice, actually. Once it was hit pretty majorly. I think three women were killed. And the next time it was uh, hit with a mortar like a week later. Media didn't talk about that. They didn't talk about the Kindy uh, Cancer Hospital, which was like the, the largest and best in the Middle East, which was completely destroyed by, I believe it was truck bombing in 2012 or so, of course, by the terrorists, you know, and then they manufactured all these stories about hospitals being bombed. And maybe you could speak about, is it in Mariupol, uh, where in, they in, claimed there was a hospital? So, but just before you yeah. do, I'll just give the the, the precedent yeah. of in Eastern, Eastern Aleppo, there was the Children's and Eye Hospital complex complex, which, which was bombed, but why was it bombed? Because the terrorist had, uh, including ISIS, had taken it over, used it as military headquarters, had gutted it completely, and were using it as military headquarters, and had prisons underneath, including uh, torture chambers, where they were torturing Syrian civilians and holding them uh, before their Sharia court, where then they would either be kept longer or killed. So there was a reason for targeting those hospitals because they were no longer hospitals. They were military installations of the terrorists. But as for um, uh, the hospital in Mariupol, uh, maybe you can talk a little about that. Yeah, I also want to add they're, they're running the same uh, chemical weapons false flags that they ran yeah. in Syria. They're running the same exact thing. On the other side, though, the Russians are running a lot of the same military operations that they were running in Syria. They're yes. running the same in Ukraine in order to uh, to achieve their objectives. So a lot of the cauldrons, a lot of the humanitarian corridors, the on again, off again negotiations, the moving of those jihadists to uh, to, to to places outside of the uh, of the country um, or in enclaves of the country constantly going back and forth with, with Israel or with uh, Erdogan in Turkey and, and trying to find solutions. It, it was the military and the diplomacy working constantly uh, month after month, week after week, year after year, trying to, uh, to, to make Syria whole again. And it worked. And it worked. And credit is, is given to the Russians, absolutely, because I remember reports where you know, they were saying that ISIS was 12 kilometers away from Damascus. At one point, and that's when the Russians stepped in. I mean, you, you know much better than I do, but the Russians stepped in, but and the Iranians stepped in, but the Syrians uh, really fought, and they fought for their country, and they won. Mm -hmm. Yes, they got support from Russia. Yes, they got support from Iran, but uh, they won. And today, or today or yesterday, um, Assad is meeting with the UAE, which is historic. Mm -hmm. And he's, I believe Syria is going to, to be invited back into the, uh, the Arab League again. They are, they are back on the international stage. It's a significant event. And it shows that all the Assad must go memes 
that we saw on the internet where you had Obama saying Assad must go. And then you had a Cameron saying Assad must go. Nikki Haley, Assad must go. Samantha Power, Assad must go. Merkel, Assad. They were all parroting the same line. Assad yeah. must go. Assad is still there. Yeah. Syria is uh, is is free. It stood it's it stood on its two feet and it fought. God, when you think about the forces that it fought, it is it is absolutely incredible that absolutely. they survived the onslaught of hostility. But they did it, and the Russians played a big role, and the Iranians played a big role. But it was the Syrian people that did the heavy lifting, and um, we're seeing a lot of the same that's already happening in Ukraine, or I believe will happen in Ukraine. The Donetsk Lugansk uh, military is doing a lot of heavy lifting. People say the Russian army, the Russian army, Russia hasn't dedicated that much of their armed forces to this conflict at all. A lot of the heavy lifting, especially in the East, is being done by Donetsk and Lugansk. And they're winning and they're moving towards the West and they're taking over towns and villages. They'll say they're liberating them. The Ukrainians say they'll be occupying them. Okay, but they're winning. They're winning. They've got the Kherson region. They've got Mariupol surrounded. You're trying to get, they're trying to get these false flags going. The maternity hospital is one mm -hmm. such case. They say there were hundreds and hundreds of patients in this hospital. It was bombed and uh, X amount of people died. And we saw these slick photos. The interesting part is that Zelensky tweeted about this literally within minutes of it happening. And that's the tell. That's when you yeah. know this was staged. They knew what was going on. The same playbooks they ran in Syria. I remember the minute you had chemical attacks in Douma, I remember it. I remember, I think it was Kerry. Kerry gets out on, on stage and correct me if I'm wrong, but someone in the White House gets on stage right away, like within an hour or two. And all of a sudden, Assad did it. Right. Assad did it. We don't have people on the ground. We don't have a forensic investigators there, but we know. Yes. But we know right away. And, and they're doing the same thing. And, and, they, and they did the same thing at that hospital in Mariupol. And, and we found out that one of the girls there that was uh, in this photo, in these photos, which showed the Mm -hmm. The event that took place in the bombing it ended up being an Instagram uh, influencer. Right. She was supposed and, to have been a pregnant her. woman, right? And supposed yeah, to be a pregnant been, woman. Yeah. I actually think she, she is a pregnant Instagram influencer. Mm -hmm. You have her page there and everything. It's there for the whole world to see. And a lot of people ask if this was a hospital that was occupied by hundreds and hundreds of people, why does uh, the official, and this is what the Ukraine is saying, the official death toll was 17 people. But were they were they Azov people or the Ukraine military? Who were these people? If this was a hospital full of hundreds and hundreds of people, what's going on here? It wasn't. It was it was a hospital that was being used by the uh, the military to stage uh, um, their, their their offensive, to stage their 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 war. Well, in terms of also a repetition of the Syria playbook, we also have you mentioned the humanitarian corridors, but then we also have the the Ukrainian militants attacking um, humanitarian corridors when civilians are trying to flee, just like they did in Syria. Exactly. Uh, I was on a humanitarian corridor in Aleppo when it was attacked uh, with when I was standing on it, two mortar shells and then another five or so afterwards. And this was this happened all the time. It had happened prior to my that that particular visit to Aleppo happened in Ghouta. You have you have uh, you had videos coming out of Syria of Syrian soldiers literally putting their bodies in the line to protect civilians from the firing of the, the terrorists as civilians fled along humanitarian corridors to the safety of the Syrian army. And, and uh, who did so they blame? Who did they blame? Well, of course, the they blamed the Western army, Russia, Assad. And by the way, I just wanted to touch on what you said at the beginning. You know, now Putin is is the, the biggest villain. And this is like, I don't need to tell you, but to listeners, like this is what the media does. They have to vilify the leadership to uh, an extraordinary degree to make the West um, like just internalize a hatred for them without even understanding what, you know, why they think they hate them. When in fact, like, I, I can't speak about Russians. I'm not, I'm still new to Russia. I can't speak about uh, Putin's popularity. Maybe you can, but I can say in my experience in Syria, Assad is, is loved. He's beloved in Syria. Um, yes, there are the Muslim Brotherhood types that obviously don't love him, but the majority of Syrians do love him. And that's something I've been saying since my first visit in 2014. And I visited right after the elections then. And during those elections, I was in Beirut waiting for a journalist visa. And I had to wait well over a month, but I finally did get it. And in the interim, the elections happened. So I went to the Syrian embassy in uh, just outside of the center of Beirut. And the streets, the highways clogged with vehicles going to that embassy. And it stayed open till midnight, not till 7 p.m. as was scheduled to accommodate all the voters. And it opened for a second day, 
which was not planned. Uh, and so, you know, you had people in the West saying like, well, they were forced to vote. Well, explain how they were forced to vote in Lebanon, right? Explain that. That doesn't make any sense. And then a week later, I was in Syria in Homs, which at the time had been called the capital of the revolution. And in Homs, there was a massive street party celebrating a week after the fact. And then fast forward to 2020, I went back for those elections. And, uh, you know, it was pretty remarkable to see Assad in Douma, where the alleged chemical attack <laughs> did not take place. And uh, surrounded by people in Douma, which is a more conservative area, by the way, it, it tends to be more like Sunni Islam. So, you know, the West would paint these as people who hate the Syrian government. And they were out in the streets dancing and cheering. And I went to Douma with a media delegation shortly after, saw the same thing, you know. And then uh, the Umayyad Square, when the election results were announced, it was just alive with like in insane amounts of cheering and enthusiasm. So um, I know Western commentators say that's staged, but that's just nonsense. You know, you, if you want to believe that, fine. But I know, I know from my time, which is extensive, like 15 trips to Syria since 2014, I know that uh, the Syrian people actually do overwhelmingly support Assad. That's not to say they don't have criticisms of the government and want change, but he isn't the issue, you know? Yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, I, look, I don't know Assad. I don't know Putin. I don't know the prime minister of Greece, Mitsotakis. Do countries have problems? Yeah, absolutely. Are these leaders good or bad or in the middle? I don't know. Right. I don't know. But, you know, there, there are leaders that seem to do a good job for their country, and there are leaders that seem to not care about their country. I think Assad has proven that he cares about his country. He cares about his country. Does it mean he's a good administrator or he does a good job with the economy, etc.? That's for the Syrian people to decide. And I say the same for Putin when it comes absolutely. to domestic issues. But... Are they capable, smart, intelligent leaders? Yeah, heck yeah. People forget Assad is a man of the West. Him and his wife are, I believe, they are they are from uh, educated in the UK. The guy's an eye doctor. He's not he's not a, a dummy. He doesn't come from some um, he, he's not some TikToker or some <laughs> some guy that that you know studied basket weaving in university no they, they, these people are educated capable people and assad is an educated capable person and and i hate how they paint all these he's a butcher and he gasses his own people it's it's absolutely ridiculous it's it's the way it's what they use to demonize these leaders and yeah. they do the same for putin putin's a kgb spies he's nothing of the sort did he work in in the kgb Yes, but he was a lawyer. He was an administrator. He was a paper pusher. That's what he was. He wasn't some guy in, in East Berlin running these big spy games like uh, like people in the West like to romanticize about it. No, he wasn't anything of the such. He was a guy that was probably working in some office, in some desk, doing administrative work. He's a trained lawyer. He is a trained lawyer. He's a smart guy. He's not crazy. He's not unhinged. Assad is not crazy. They're not unhinged. They, 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 they are. Are they, are they patriots or maybe what you would say in the U.S. nationalist? Yeah, if it means loving your country, yeah. But so was Trump. You can make the argument. You can say that Trump is is someone who loves his country and is a nationalist. You can make that argument. You can or say any any nationalist. Israeli prime minister. <laughs> any Israeli, yeah, exactly. And that wouldn't be a you problem make, for people in the West. Yeah, and 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 it shouldn't be. Let the people vote. If the if the people want someone who's who's more on the right and more uh, nation state. Okay, if they want someone who's more on the left or more liberal progressive, okay, but that should be for the people of that country to decide. The fact that they always say about elections, this was rigged, Crimea was rigged, Syria was rigged. You know, Brexit was rigged. Was Brexit rigged? If it doesn't go their way, it's rigged. Yes, Brexit was rigged, I hear. Joe Biden, 81 million votes. <laughs> 81 million votes. It took them, what is it, one week to figure things out? One week. One week to figure out those votes in those five states. So there's, they, they censored, the U.S. big tech censored a sitting president of the United States. They have zero, zero basis to complain about Putin or Assad or anybody, anybody. And when they sit there in their panels on Fox News, and they talk, oh, my God, I can't believe that Russia is banning Facebook or they're banning liberal media which they're not really banning all of no. liberal media. That's, no. that's false. But anyway, if they say that, I laugh because I say, what do you guys censor? You deplatform your own president. What are you guys talking about? Your own president. Not me, not you, not some guy off the street, a president. 
Hunter Biden's laptop now is real, Eva. It's, it's real. <laughs> New York Times admits it two years later. It, it, it's ridiculous. It, it's absolutely ridiculous. But, but, not, but I agree with you. It's, 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 <laughs> so, it, it, it um, frustrates me. It's frustrating when you see this stuff going on. Get, getting back to uh, events in Ukraine, um, let's see. You you have a, an American based in, I think, in Kharkov. Is that the right pronunciation? Yes. Uh, Gonzalo. Uh, no. You're talking about Gonzalo. Yeah, yeah. So can yes. you just tell? Uh, from like, Chile. I, I've I, I, seen... think, I think he's Chilean. Chilean. Yeah. Okay, okay. We'll see that. I, that just goes to emphasize what I was going to say. I don't know anything about him. Uh, can you explain like uh, who he is? Because uh, he seems to provide some very insightful commentary when you and Alexander have him on. So who is he? How long has he been in Ukraine? And um, maybe like what kind of insights have you gleaned from him? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I've, I've never met him in person. Um, we we were doing shows on the Duran um, before all of this happened. And he, he was a he had a, he had a different channel on YouTube. And he was a fan of uh, geopolitics in general. He liked, he was interested in geopolitics. And that's how we connected. And we did some shows uh, on geopolitics. I don't know what the topics were uh, before all of this happened. But um, he's, he, he got caught up in the war and he was living in Ukraine. He's been living there for, I mean, I'm not sure how long, I imagine many years. I believe he, uh, he, uh, he has a, a family in Ukraine. I believe he married uh, a, a woman from Ukraine. He has a, a family there and he lives in Kharkov and he loves it and he likes the Ukraine people. And uh, he just got caught up in the war. But um, what he saw very much parallels what I think you saw when the war started. He saw that things weren't as the media was uh, portraying them to be. Zelensky was not the person that the media was portraying him to be. Uh, the the Azov battalion and the way some of these uh, battalions were acting really unnerved him. And he came, and I don't want to speak for him, but I believe he came to the realization that these people in power and these people that the West are propping up, they don't care about the people. They want the chaos. They want the war. They're not concerned about the average Ukrainian. They're not concerned about finding a peaceful solution. They're not concerned about any of these things. They're concerned about chaos. And uh, he's He's been um, he's been broadcasting from Kharkiv. At, at one point, he was in Kiev, and then he made his way to Kharkiv, and he's been broadcasting from Kharkiv. And you know, the main takeaway when I listen to his broadcast, whether he's on our show, whether he's doing his own uh, his own shows, is this: he's uh, doing YouTube shows in the middle of a war zone. He says, "I have internet. I have mobile. I have YouTube. I, uh, I have water, running water, sewage. You name it." And the point there is that Russia is not going in to level these cities. They're not going in to cause destruction and chaos. If that was the point, they would have caused uh, destruction and chaos on the first day. And it's not because the Russian military is no good or they've, they've, been, uh, they, they've stopped outside the city because they've been repelled by the Ukraine military. All of that is ridiculous. The Russian military has orders. Surround the cities and wait. Mm -hmm. Do not destroy the cities do not cause civilian casualties because these people are our people we are the same we speak the same language we have the same history we don't want to destroy these cities that we built odessa is russian history kharkiv is russian history they don't want to go in there and destroy it they don't want to destroy ukraine they want to capture ukraine and they want to do as they as putin stated they want to demilitarize it and denazify it they don't want to destroy it they want all of these Azov, Bandera elements gone. And Putin's been, been very straight about this. Those people, I do not want to be these Azov guys. I do not want to be these Banderites. I don't want to be them because when Russian gets their hands on them, oh boy, it's not going to be pretty. And if there's one thing that Russians hate, it's Nazis. They despise them for good reason, if you, if, if you look at Russian history. But... Um, you know, they their goal is to is, is to capture Ukraine and to move Ukraine on side to make it a peaceful uh, neighbor, which is not threatening to them. No NATO, no missiles, no missile systems, no nuclear threats. No one talks about Zelensky at the Munich uh, Security Conference talking up how he's going to get nuclear weapons. And Kamala Harris didn't tell him to shut up. Olaf Schultz didn't tell him to shut up. Ursula von der Leyen didn't say shut up. What are these leaders thinking in Europe? I, it, it, it amazes me that 
you have this Zelensky guy running around in Germany saying, we're going to get nuclear weapons. And not one, not one of these super smart European officials or the brilliant Kamala Harris didn't say, Zelensky, shut up, stop. Mm. You're going to cause big, big problems if you go around running your mouth that you're going to get nuclear weapons right uh, on Russia's doorstep. No one told him that. No one. They egged him on. They said, yeah, yeah, keep on going. And NATO too. It, it, these are just the facts. And, you know, Gonzalo is, is, is interesting to listen to because by listening to him and watching his shows, you realize that Russia is not there to destroy Kharkov and they're not there to destroy Kiev and they're not there to destroy Odessa. Now, Mariupol mm-hmm. is, is, a, is a different story because in Mariupol you had from my reports, anywhere from 12 to 14,000 of the best Azov fighters embedded and entrenched in there and entrenched over the years. So (laughs) there they went in hard, but everywhere else they've gone in very, very soft. And they're, they're going in soft for the reasons that I, that that I said, they don't want to destroy the country. They want to capture the country. They don't want to destroy it. They don't want to do what they did, what the U S did to Iraq. They don't want to flatten cities like what the U.S. did right. to, uh, to to flatten many of the cities in Syria. Mm-hmm. No one talks about. Right. Rock they up. don't want to do these. Yeah, they don't want to do these things. They, they, they don't they want to keep the, the administrative structure in place. They don't want uh, whatever of the military that they can salvage. They want to salvage. They don't want to um, de what was the process in Iraq? Debathification. They don't want that because they realize that will lead to all kinds of, of vacuums and chaos. So whatever structures they can keep in place, they want to keep in place. That, that's why they're, they're moving in a very surgical, methodical way. But they're winning. There's no doubt about it. The Ukraine military had, was decimated on day one. On day one, it was done. But now they're, they're, they're working. Once again, like in Syria, military action diplomacy, military action diplomacy, humanitarian yeah. corridors, clear out the cities, denazify. In Syria, it was get rid of the jihadists. In Ukraine, it's get rid of these Azov guys get civilians out, use diplomacy again. I mean, you know, everything is working hand in hand. The Sea Report and all the shows on this podcast channel are 100% listener supported. We don't have corporate sponsors. We don't have independent sponsors. Our sponsors are you, the listener. So if you like the work we do and like what we have to say and contribute to the world of news and information and entertainment, please show us your support. Make a monthly donation to help sustain future episodes at anchor.fm slash the sea report. Your support is greatly appreciated from 99 cents per month to 499 per month to 999 per month. Every donation counts and every bit helps. Show your support for The Sea Report and other shows on this podcast channel by visiting anchor.fm slash The Sea Report. And thanks, y'all. I'd like you to um, address this, these points. Um, I mean, you've already highlighted... Uh, how Ukraine was a threat, not just to the people of Donbass, but also to Russia with all this nuclear talk. But, you know, you have people who are anti-imperialist or anti-war, whatever their labels are, in the West uh, saying, you know, I condemn both sides and Russia shouldn't have invaded Ukraine. And, you know, um, they're not going to achieve anything. They've just pissed off the West. They're not, you know, all these kind of um arguments that to me uh, spell out uh, people who aren't actually informed of what's really happening on the ground. Uh, but what would you say to this to this whole like you have to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine and this is an illegal invasion and you know there is no need to do this? Look, that, that's, it's a hard one because no one is in favor of war. I'm not in favor of course, Of course, of course. No one, no one. Um, so you have to look at uh, what are the reasons that Russia gives? Yes. And, and once again, if, if we stop this hysterical demonization of Russia and these, these caricatures of Putin and Russia, then people can start to, to at least try to understand what Russia is saying. You don't have to like it. You don't have to approve it. You can actually be an enemy of Russia's, but you still have to try and listen to what they're saying, because if we don't listen, we're very close to a nuclear conflict. So at least let's try to listen to their reasoning. And they make a compelling case. 
And, uh, you know, we've had shows with Robert Barnes, who's, who's one of the, the best legal, legal minds in the U.S. And, and he has said, I'm not for war. Mm-hmm. I don't approve of conflict or the war. But if this was a courtroom and if Russia was to present their case as to why they did what they did, Robert Barnes says most likely they would win because they have a very compelling case. Now, Putin has been, I believe, has been very straightforward and honest with the Russian people as to why they did it. Are those all the reasons? I don't know. Maybe there could be other reasons involved. Maybe there's reasons with gas transits or pipelines or who knows? I don't know. But the reasons that at least he's given the people and he's given the world, if you listen to him, you you, you sit back and you say, okay, I mean, I'm not for this. I don't want war. I don't want people to suffer, but I, I, I can see their point. I can see why they felt they were pushed up against the wall. And he says, you know, we, we tried for countless years, mm-hmm. eight years at a minimum, to get the Minsk Accords, to, uh, to get Ukraine to follow the Minsk Accords. They wouldn't do it. We've said for eight years, please don't pour arms and military assistance and NATO aid to Ukraine. They wouldn't do it. Stop attacking the Donbass with shelling. They wouldn't do it. This is eight years now, over yeah. and over again. Yeah. They wouldn't do it. We have to figure out how to to, to get rid of these these Nazi um, uh, elements in Ukraine. We have to figure it out. These guys are a threat. These are radicals. They wouldn't do it. And everything was the reverse. Arm them, give them more weapons, give them uh, uh, anti-aircraft missiles. This is crazy. You're arming these guys with anti-aircraft missiles? In two, three years, when a commercial airline is shot down in Europe, people are going to be scratching their heads. How did this happen? Well, like, gee, I wonder how this happened. Russia has been saying for the past eight years, we need to solve Ukraine and the roadmap is Minsk. But no one is following Minsk. And not only were they not following Minsk, they were doing the exact reverse. More NATO, more weapons, more Azov battalion. You know, they they cut off Russian media. Zelensky did this. Zelensky won on a pro-Russia stance. He said he was going to unify the country. That that lasted for about a month. (laughs) About a month, that's it. They banned Russian media. They banned the Russian language. They tore up the Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church. People don't talk about that. They Mm -hmm. created this heretical, different Frankenstein church, which no one recognizes as legitimate except for the the stupid Greek Greek government, which is a stupidity. But anyway, they they did all of this. And and they put the the number one political uh, adversary of, uh, of Zelensky, they put him under house arrest. How is this a democracy? Mm-hmm. How is this a democracy at all? And all this happened just the last year without taking into account the 20,000 people, 14, 20,000 people that died in Donbass, the constant shelling. And days before the, uh, what the Russians call special operation, what the West calls a war and an invasion, what the Russians call a special operation, days before the shelling reached dangerous levels. And this is not according to, to Russians, this is according to the OSCE. Mm-hmm. And they said that most of the shelling, 80% of the shelling was coming from the East, from, from the West, from the, the military that had around 80 to 100,000 troops right on the conflict line with Donbass and Lugansk. Yeah. Putin says they were ready to invade. They were ready for a blitzkrieg. We have evidence. We have documents that in March, they were going to make their move. Putin says we beat them to the punch. But even then, the most interesting part about Putin's revelations is that he says, even when we uh, started our military operation, we told the Ukraine uh, government in Kiev, have those troops that are on the contact line retreat and we'll stop. Have them retreat, push Mm -hmm. them back. You want to know what they did? They pushed forward. Was Russia goaded into this? I think the case, in my opinion, I think there's a very strong case that Russia was goaded into this. They didn't have many options left. And um, I also believe that that the Kremlin said it's either now or things are going to get a lot, lot worse. That's what I believe they said. Either now or things are going to get a lot, lot worse. And the Russians see this as finishing the war. They don't see this as starting a war. They see this as finishing it. And, and, and it's a big difference from how the, the West sees this. Absolutely. And the, the whole 
premise, you know, of being against wars is, is all fine and good. But again, what about the last eight years of war on the people of Donbass? They're, they're surely against war as well. They surely just want their kids to be able to walk to school, go to school without fear of them being bombed or, or sniped, depending on the case of where they are. Um, so I just wanted to touch on something in your March uh, 17th upload. Um, you were discussing uh, Putin's speech the day prior. Is there anything in addition to what you've already said about Putin's stance and, and reasons for this uh, military operation? Is there anything from the March 16th uh, speech that you feel like it's important to mention now? Well, I, th- I think Putin's last speeches that he gave, even the one that he gave uh, yesterday <laughs> with uh, the Crimea uh, reunification day, Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's no doubt that Russia is, uh, they're, they're done with, with this system, this globalist Western system. They're out. Uh, they're going to pay a heavy price. It's going to be hard, but they'll make it through. And I'm very confident they'll make it through. Um, they, they, they don't have any intent to go back. They don't have any intent to do business with the West. They don't want to keep their money or their reserves in the West anymore. They're not going to deal with the banks in the West they're not going to deal with the USD. They're out. They're fully out. And I believe that's going to encompass everything from, from financial to, um, to, to military, to, to judicial, to social, and just everything in people's daily lives. They're, the Russians have extracted themselves from this system, and they've taken the decision, I believe, with the Chinese, perhaps India, definitely, I believe, Iran. Maybe, maybe Turkey, maybe a little Saudi Arabia, maybe Pakistan, maybe a lot of other countries, maybe a lot of countries in South America, America, definitely Syria. I think a lot of countries are going to say we're going to build a parallel system, a new system to what what this Western system was, which was based very much on the petrodollar and um, these these Western uh, liberal uh, values and ideals, which I think we call neoliberal values and ideals. Um, you know, Putin was basically saying we've we've we're free. It's going to be hard the next six months, but we're free, and uh, we don't want any of of what of, of what they're they were giving us before. We don't need it anymore. We we can make it on our own. And, and I thought that was significant. It, it is the end of globalism, to a sense. I mean, what's globalism going to be? It's going to be, you know, the Europe, U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand. That's going to be globalism. <laughs> Everyone else, I think, is going to. You're going to look at this new system with China and Russia and, and other countries in Eurasia and Belarus and all these countries. They're going to say, this is interesting. This is very, maybe this is more fair. Maybe there's more trust in this system. You know, Biden, the Biden White House and the Europeans, I'm, I'm stunned at, at the moves they made. They broke the trust of, of an entire architecture that they built over, over decades. That trust, they broke it um, in the financial system. In the social structure of things, they broke it. They went after central banks. They confiscated people's private property. Abramovich, what they did to him. I'm not saying you have to like Abramovich. Maybe he's an oligarch. Maybe you don't like him. But it was still his private property. They confiscated it just like that. I mean, they've completely uh, a circling firing squad, really. I mean, that's the only way I can describe it. They've, They've done it to themselves. They've done it to themselves. And, and you know what? Russia's going to be fine in six months. I really believe that because maybe they're not going to get the iPhones. Maybe they're not going to have the McDonald's or the Starbucks or the Zada, but they'll have their own. But what they do have, they have the fertilizer, they have the wheat, they have the gas, they have the oil, they have the, the metals, the nickel. They have the things that count and they have China at their back and they have India at their back. These are rising great power. China is a great power. It rivals the U.S. India is a rising great power. So I'm absolutely stunned at uh, at the moves that uh, that the Biden White House and these European uh, technocrats made. I'm stunned. They they destroyed themselves. They destroyed themselves. They destroyed their system. They destroyed themselves. And in six months, when Russia is getting through this, that's when the real pain for Europe and the United. United States is going to begin. I mean, they're complaining about inflation now or gas prices now. They haven't seen anything yet. They haven't seen anything yet. It, it, it's, it's, it's the hatred, the emotional hatred came through. They weren't thinking and everything was driven by hate and it overtook them. 
Well, um, Alex, Alex, I'm sorry, not Alexander. Um, I'm going to wrap up. I think we're around an hour, but uh, really, thank you so much for your uh, really informative and valued insights. Um, I encourage people to follow the Duran and your own personal channel. I will put links to both. Uh, any other sites you want to plug in? Are you on Telegram? We are on Telegram. Absolutely. You can find us on Telegram as well. Just put, uh, I believe it's uh, the Duran.com, the Duran okay. underscore com on Telegram. Um, just follow us, follow our locals, the Duran.locals.com. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, just keep on following your channel, our channel, any other uh, channels that try to give you an objective viewpoint of things. It's hard. It's hard because uh, back in, in the days of Syria, to wrap it up, in the days of Syria, if you were uh, reporting, uh, the truth about what was going on in Syria, it was hard, but the censorship didn't really ramp up then. Yeah. And uh, it was just starting. And then with, with Trump and Russiagate and the Ukraine impeachment, all this stuff, it started to gain a lot of momentum. Then with, uh, with COVID, it gained a lot of momentum. Now with this Russia uh, story, it's, it's off the charts now. It's yeah. off the charts. So, you know, people need to think about that. You know, everyone needs to think about, uh, you know, if you're cheering for, for Zelensky and and what's going on in Ukraine, and you're you know saying yeah we need to get the Russians and and all of these things, just take a step back and see who you're siding with, <laughs> you know the Soros and the Pelosi's and mm -hmm. and all of these people and then the Bidens and the Chalupas and uh, and and the Newlands, all of the same people that we've seen through Syria all the way to Russiagate, it's all the same people. It's, it's incredible when you take a step back and see all of these people that are now pushing the narrative for this conflict in Ukraine. It is all the same people that we saw over the years. You can probably go all the way back to Iraq and it's the same faces. All right, Alex, thank you so much. Uh, I, I would definitely love to chat with you again, maybe in a week or two's time for updates on uh, what you know political developments um, uh, regarding uh, Ukraine. But uh, thank you for today. It was really very useful. Definitely. Th thank you for having me on.